When it comes to building and financing stronger businesses, Apollo does the heavy lifting by providing customized capital solutions to drive innovation and growth. Apollo, investing in tomorrow, today. Learn more at Apollo.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Matt Peterson, the Ideas Editor at Barron's. My guest today is Dilip Singh, the Chief Global Economist at PGM Fixed Income. Uh, he's had a lot of other interesting jobs, including as Deputy National Security Advisor for International Economics under President Biden. Uh, he's joining us today audio only, so sorry you won't see our handsome faces today. Uh, Dilip, welcome to Barron's Live. Thank you, Matt. Glad to be with you. So, Dilip, you have done a lot of really interesting jobs, and I wanted to start by talking about those quickly here. Um, you started out as a trader at Goldman. You worked at the Treasury Department for a while, went back and forth to the private sector. You joined the New York Fed right before COVID snuck up on everyone. Uh, you went to the National Security Council and watched Russia's invasion of Ukraine unfold. Um, what, what have you learned through all that about how to process big global events? And what do you look at when a crisis unfolds? Yeah, I mean, Matt, I've had a, a nonlinear career path, some might say an incoherent one. Uh, but but yeah, I spent roughly half of my career in the private sector. And then for most of the post-GFT period, uh, I was in government service, as you mentioned, until about a year ago. And I'd say, uh, I mean, like most people, I suppose I'm most shaped by what I saw when I came of age professionally. And I, I entered the workforce during the late 1990s. And, and what I saw playing out in front of me was the post-Cold War unipolar geopolitical order that, that paved the way for the so-called great moderation in the global economy. And then I watched it fall apart. And uh, so, so takeaway one is I, I've come to understand that it was the unipolar moment of great moderation that was the outlier. And it's the volatility, the uncertainty, sometimes uh, the horror of the current moment, it's actually the norm. And I believe the world has a tendency towards disarray if we don't shape and update and lead the order for ourselves. Uh, but I think the second takeaway for me is the private sector by itself is not going to lead the way and, and solve the biggest problems that we have in our society. Um, for one, markets fail uh, regularly and spectacularly. Uh, when I was in the tech sector in the late 90s, I mean, I, I scratched my head like everybody else as pets.com IPO'd and then <laughs> the bubble burst spectacularly. And I was on, you mentioned Goldman, I was on the interest rate trading desk at Goldman before and during the GFC and, and, and watched how subprime debt got tranched into AAA and CDO squared securities before they became junk and imploded. And, and yeah, I was running the markets group at the New York Fed in March of 2020 when there was a global run on treasuries, you know, the unrivaled risk-free asset of the world. And it would have unhinged the entire global economy if we hadn't backstopped the market with what was the largest government intervention in financial history at the time. So, I mean, I, I've come away believing markets, they're nothing more than the synthesis of human emotion. And inevitably they cycle through greed and fear. 
so left to themselves, they'll fail. Uh, and the last thing I'll say, I mean, just to be fair, you know, policy, of course, really matters in moderating the cycles of the market, especially around crises, but policy can fail too. And I've seen that happen as well. And, and I, I, I really believe we need more talented people from multiple disciplines who see the world through multiple lenses to serve in government. Um, and so that's, that's really what shaped my mindset. Yeah. You, you were saying you thought that the unipolar moment was, was over. Uh, I, I talked to a, the CEO of a global insurance company recently, and his job is to warn people about new risks. And he, he told me that his parents called him the other day and told him, what are you complaining about? We had all this in the 1970s. And I take it you share some of that worldview that yeah. like the world is going back to, you know, it's old pattern or something like that. But how do you understand what is happening sort of in the big picture? Yeah, I mean, it's a return to the old normal, if you want to have a catchphrase. But, but I mean, I, I remember in, in, in the 90s, you know, reading The End of History, Francis Fukuyama's bestseller. And it was, the notion was that liberal democracy had taken almost permanent ascendance. And the, the isms of the 20th century, communism, nationalism, totalitarianism were out. You know, democratic capitalism and global supply chains were in. China joined the WTO. Russia joined the G7. Europe unveiled the euro in 99. The BRICS were the Beatles among emerging economies. So all of that, you know, I mean, before getting to how it unraveled, I mean, the global economy reaped the dividends of that backdrop. I mean, we had inflation and interest rates falling almost continuously. The U.S. federal budget was in surplus by the end of the 90s. Treasury stopped issuing the 30-year bond. Uh, and the entire world was lifted by a productivity boom driven by information technology. And technology was, was seen as an unambiguous force for prosperity and peace. So, you know, I, we don't live in that world anymore. And, and so if the, the state of the world has changed, uh, so will the, the market regime, so will our, so should our priors about growth and inflation and interest rates. And the question I'm grappling with is, okay, we're no longer in the old world, but what is the new world we're in? Uh, hmm. I, I mean, I, I think there are at least five big forces we can talk about. Uh, the intensification of great power conflict, almost unprecedented political polarization, a bumpy transition from, a bumpy but necessary transition from fossil fuels to renewables, the reorientation of supply chains, the migration away from a single market for technology that diffuses across borders, I think all of those forces are leading us to a, an environment of structurally higher trend inflation, mm -hmm. uh, higher trend growth in some places like the U.S., uh, but also higher volatility, higher risk premium, and I think higher interest rates. So, yeah, in some ways, I think the new era is very similar to what we experienced during the long sweep of history before the Cold War ended in 1990. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So one of the things that you're you're getting at here is that um there's a lot of a lot of ways that global shifts matter for investors beyond the sort of day-to-day -day, you know does israel's war with hamas affect oil prices right can you talk about like how you like again to go back to the question i asked at the outset like what is it that you look at to process an event like say that that um that the, the war uh, in Israel and Gaza, like what, what is it that you, how do you unravel the effects of that for markets? Well, I mean, I, I don't, I don't look at an event like the, 
uh, like Hamas's attack on Israel in isolation, uh, mm-hmm. I, I think of this as a world in which the shocks are going to keep coming. And so how do we lift up and connect the dots between an increasingly fraught geopolitical backdrop and the economic cycle? And, you know, my day job is to think about how that influences financial markets. So, I mean, what, so what does more intense geopolitical competition mean for the economy? Well, I think in the first instance, it means more fiscal spending on defense. A second order effect is probably more investment on the supply side of the economy to generate competitive advantages. That's exactly what the IRA and the CHIPS Act and the infrastructure bill were all about. Uh, political polarization, what, what is, how does that affect markets? Well, I mean, if there's less weight in the political center, then it, the likelihood is we'll have less centrist fiscal policy and more disregard of deficits. Well, that has an implication on uh, inflation and interest rates. Uh, it probably also has an implication on the support for labor's bargaining power. And it may have, uh, it may have a bearing on the market's perception of policy credibility as we, as we adapt to a new policy mix. And then if you think about what's going on in the energy market as we transition to renewables, uh, it's going to be bumpy. I mean, I think we're going to have more frequent energy imbalances. We, I mean, the Hamas uh, invasion of Israel could have and still can metastasize into a regional conflict that affects oil-producing countries, especially Iran. Uh, but, but if you lift up, I mean, what do we have in front of us? We have parabolic growth in renewable supply. That's great. But we're still decades away from renewables substituting fully for fossil fuels. And meanwhile, uh, there's a non-trivial share of fossil fuels and the clean energy supply chain that is already or potentially at risk of getting weaponized for geopolitical advantage. So I think that has an enduring effect on uh, energy prices, headline inflation, the challenge for central banks to anchor inflation expectations. It means more pressure on fiscal authorities to cushion the most vulnerable from energy price spikes. And it leads to much more balance of payments volatility between commodity producers and commodity consumers. So I'm just giving you a few examples, but Mm -hmm. in each of these shifts in the state of the world, I think the challenge is how do you connect the dots to the demand side and the supply side of the economy? And then what does that do to the way you think about investing? That's really the challenge. Yeah, Um, that's, that's a great way to think about things. I want to like walk through some of the specific issues you mentioned. I mean, you 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 raised the question of fiscal spending, for instance, right? You you know the first thing you said when uh, when you came on the show here was um, that you know markets can't solve everything on their own. Um, what can you talk about? Like what you expect, h- how you are thinking about sort of government spending and government policy in a world where. The politics are very polarized. It's hard for the U.S. government in particular to do a lot of things. Debt is rising, and yet there is you know, so much need for and demand for intervention um, to, to help any number of problems. Yeah, I mean, so I think you, you caught my premise correctly. I think the, the, biggest, the biggest challenges in our world are going to require, I think, a greater role of uh, government and probably more fiscal spending, you know, extreme inequality climate change. Uh, uh, we have too many people who feel left behind and, and perceive that the system is rigged. Um, you know, we have extreme levels of uh, social disparity. People have lives of despair, vulnerabilities in our supply chains, possibly a narrowing edge in our uh, technological preeminence. So yeah, we're gonna have to spend more money uh, at the 
at the federal government level. The question I think the market is grappling with is, does this make our debt less sustainable and, or at least does it increase the risk premium on, uh, on government debt? And I think these are two separate questions, really. Uh, I think people conflate the two, but when it comes to sustainability, I mean, the question is, can our economic growth and therefore our tax revenues continue to exceed our, our cost to borrow? That's really what will drive whether debt as a share of our economy stabilizes. And the good news is nominal GDP growth in the U.S. has been well above 7% in recent years. Uh, it was well above 9% in Q3. And our weighted average interest cost was about 3%. So right now the math of debt sustainability is favorable. But we know at, at current yields, even with the 75 bit drops in the 10 year, uh, you know, if yields stay here, interest costs for the federal government are going to rise. Uh, and the average maturity in our public debt's about six years, so half will need to get refinanced by the end of the decade. And it really boils down, sustainability is really a question of whether we're spending wisely so that growth can continue to outpace the rise of interest costs. And that's why I think, you know, the, the supply side investments that have been made in R&D and infrastructure and technology and our labor force, that's exactly what we need. So I'm optimistic about getting through this, but execution is everything. And in the meantime, you know, I think buyers of treasuries, I mean, they're telling us with their money, voting with their money, that they're going to require a higher level of compensation because the uncertainties of investing in bonds are greater. You know, they don't, they don't know whether and when Congress will be functional enough to exert fiscal restraint. Uh, they don't know if growth is going to keep up with interest rates. And they don't know whether other buyers are going to show up too and, and how much compensation they'll require uh, to absorb record amounts of supply. You know, you have to go back to the 1990s to find a period when the combination of treasury purchases from price-insensitive buyers like foreign central banks and the Fed was less than 50%. And right now, the marginal buyer of treasuries by a large margin is uh, the household category, which is mostly hedge funds in the way that it's accounted for. And that, that, is, not, that is not cause for comfort in terms of the U.S. having a predictable source of demand. And so that all of those uncertainties, Matt, I think they have a price and that the price is a higher term premium. That's what we're seeing play out in markets. And that's also going to bleed back into the politics at some level, right? I mean, if, if the cost mm -hmm. of servicing our debt is just going to rise as a consequence, none of this gets any easier anytime soon, I think. Um, that's, that's right. I, I, I think uh, if we're in an era of political polarization, I don't think there's going to be a constituency anytime soon that that really makes it its priority to uh, impose fiscal consolidation. Yeah. Um, let me remind the audience that we would love to hear your questions and please drop them into the chat and we will we will get to them. Um, I'm going to throw one in here right now from a, a, a listener named uh, Lee, who's asking about great power competition. Um, yeah, do you see Russia, China and Iran remaining strong powers informing the conflicts we see in the future? Uh, and do you think any of those are going to decrease in power? Yeah, I mean, we could spend uh, we could spend the full time on each of those <laughs> countries. Yeah, I mean, look, I, Russia. Let's let's take Russia first. Um, you know, I I think the aftermath of the war for for Russia is we now have an expanded and fortified NATO. We have dramatic increases in European defense spending. We have a Ukrainian military that's armed to the teeth the strongest G7 and transatlantic alliance in decades. And, and back home, you know, Putin is 
is dealing with a smaller, weaker, more isolated economy. He's lost access to the largest capital market and the most cutting edge technology. Uh, he's lost half of his former customer base for energy sales. Um, he's lost over a thousand multinational corporations, maybe up to a million of his best and brightest people. Uh, and, you know, a mutiny by his own mercenary force. So I could go on, but this is a, this is not a strategic win for Russia. I think they're going to remain, however, a rogue state, uh, licking its wounds from, from the misjudgment they made about Ukraine's resolve in the first instance. That's what's most important, but also the West resolve. And I hope, you know, I hope it forces a reassessment in Russia of what constitutes strategic power. It's not just a land grab. It's, you know, can you actually expand, modernize, and diversify your economy? Can you develop a world-class military industrial complex? Um, can you expand your productive frontier? I think right now the answer to all those questions is no. Uh, it's up to the Russian people to decide to take a different course. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the caller, Matt, asked about China and Iran. I'm happy to go into my answers on those countries too, but up to you. Yeah, well, let, let's... Let's talk briefly a little bit more about Russia, because I wanted to ask you specifically about um, some of the energy consequences, because you were involved in um, setting up the price cap when you were in um, the National Security Council. And one of the yeah. things that has happened um, since that went into effect is that the Russians have gotten pretty good. At, they've set up this large shadow fleet with a couple hundred tankers. They're They've been relatively effective at finding ways to continue to import energy um, in ways that are you know, not impinged on by the cap. Some of that was by design. Um, does that, what do you think is in store here in terms of like a shift in the global energy supply out of channels that are, you know, visible to and, you know, affected by sort of Western government policy? Yeah, it's a great question, Matt. I mean, it's and it's uh, it's tied into the broader theme of this transition away from fossil fuels to renewables. But um, we're in a world in which renewables are still only about 20% of the total energy production we get in the world, and the rest are mostly from fossil fuels. Um, and so, as I said before, it's going to take decades before renewables are a viable substitute. And in the meantime, uh, a non-trivial share of fossil fuel energy is at risk of getting weaponized. And, and Russia 2022 and beyond has been an example of it, but it's not going to be the only one. And even when we transition towards clean energy, I mean, the reality is that even in key choke points for electric vehicles, uh, the concentration of market power at key stages of production, it's even greater for clean energy than it is for fossil fuels. I mean, just to put this in numbers, the top three producers of oil and gas in the world, each producer commands about 10 to 15% of the global total. But if you look at China's uh, share of mineral processing for uh, minerals like lithium, manganese, cobalt, graphite, uh, it's anywhere from 60 to 90%. So, I mean, the price cap is an example of uh, an effort by consuming countries to try to regain some of their bargaining power in the context of uh, what could be persistent mismatches between energy supply and demand and and a way to push back against the geopolitical leverage that top suppliers can exert. So I, I think of it as it's a template. You're right that that Russia has has found ways to evade the price cap and and yeah, necessity is the mother of invention. 
the G7 is going to have to continue to find ways to play the cat and mouse game. And that's the only way for these types of mechanisms to work. But I don't think they're going away. I think we'll see more of these efforts in the future just because of the geopolitical backdrop that I'm describing. Right. And the other place that that's playing out, of course, is with, with China, um, as you've mentioned. I mean, do, do you think that the San Francisco summit stabilized the relationship? And, and similarly, you know, are we seeing the peak of the sort of management of tech competition through export controls and other similar measures? Or is that going to grow in your mind? Yeah, um, gosh, I, um, I'm afraid this is, this is just going to be a short honeymoon. Um, I mean, there is a loud and bipartisan consensus in Washington in terms of the diagnosis of what we're up against that uh, in, in, the, in the mind of most, most policymakers, doesn't matter the party, uh, the view is that President Xi's ambition is to restore China's hegemony, at least in the Indo-Pacific, probably well beyond, and that he's, he's seeking dominance mostly through economic and technological primacy. Uh, and that the U.S. in particular, but, but democracies more generally, are undergoing inexorable decline. So he's taking more tactical risks uh, to realize his strategic ambition. And, you know, the old mantra from Chairman Deng of hide your strength, bide your time, that's out. And at least some degree of muscle flexing is in. So if you take that diagnosis as a given, uh, then it follows that, you know, China's economic model is going to be increasingly state-led and centralized. And, and the growth strategy in China will be underpinned by SOEs and national champions that rely on uh, market distortion, subsidies, discriminatory regulations, sometimes theft. And so the view from Washington is this is an unfair competition between American businesses and the Chinese government. Uh, and it's also a threat to our military preeminence because of China's military civil fusion program that makes no distinction between the commercial and military sectors. That is, I'm saying all that because it's re the reason why these export controls and the tech competition that you asked about, that's why it's happening. Uh, and, you know, look, I, I think the, the notion, the metaphor that's being used of a, of a small yard and high fence, it's the right one. We wanna, we wanna set these controls uh, with precision and we don't wanna dull the incentives for innovation in the US. Uh, we don't wanna forego the positive spillovers of advances in technology, and we don't want to cede the Chinese market to competitors. Um, so the question is, how do you do that? And I, I think, I mean, I was in government when we started looking at these questions. Uh, we need to regularly assess which technologies are and, and likely will be most critical to U.S. national security. Uh, it's fair to say that semiconductors and AI and quantum biotech, uh, robotics, they belong in the list, but it's going to change with time. And so the public sector will always need to play catch up with the frontiers of the private sector. Second, you know, you need to work out where is China furthest behind now and where will they likely be in the future? And, and therefore, where will they be most likely to try and close the gap? And by the way, we have to do the same work in terms of where we're behind and therefore most vulnerable to China putting on controls that slow our development. And then you need to figure out, well, does China have substitutes for U.S. technology, either by developing it indigenously or from third countries? And then can you build a coalition around the controls that we're thinking about implementing? And finally, I think most importantly, Matt, what this work involves is stress testing and wargaming. Where do our collective technology strengths intersect with China's vulnerabilities and vice versa? 
and then simulate how a tit-for-tat escalation will play out over the course of years in, in a like a multiplayer, multi-game contest. Mm-hmm. And then before you impose any controls, ask the question, are we likely to be net better off by imposing these? And that's how you that's how you maintain a strategic anchor around these efforts. And it's how you prevent the dimensions of the the fence in the yard from creeping higher and wider, which of course everybody wants to avoid. Um, let me try to bring this back to some kind of bread and butter issues for our audience. So a question from Gabriel, who wants to know about lithium. Um, Gabriel says the EV industry keeps moving forward, but lithium prices and stocks are still far from their past highs. What impact do you see on this industry um, and over what time frame? Yeah, I think lithium, there are about five or so critical minerals for the electric vehicle supply chain. Lithium's one of them, uh, along with cobalt, manganese, graphite, copper, a few others. Um, I think over the course of time, let's say 10 plus years, they're going to be in strong demand. I mean, that's absent some change in the technological mix of batteries, and there is some prospect of that. But let's just say the likelihood is that lithium is going to continue to see a lot of global demand as as the electric vehicle supply chains go global and they go deeper. Uh, I, I do think there is some prospect. I mean, this is kind of a moonshot that what you see now in the Strategic Petroleum Reserve in the U.S., uh, it, might, it might shift. I mean, I, one of the thoughts I've had is, do we really need a Strategic Petroleum Reserve? Hmm. Shouldn't we kind of broaden it out to a Strategic Resilience Reserve? Because we're now, I mean, the SPR was created when we were net importers of petroleum by a, by a large margin. We're now, we're now net exporters, uh, but we, we have huge needs to import uh, refined products, but also some of these critical minerals. Lithium could be one of those. So, uh, you know, I mean, this is, um, this is just a, a passing thought, but I'm sure those thoughts are also on the minds of policymakers in other countries, and it could be a game changer for minerals like, uh, like lithium. Yeah. Can, can you come back to this question of what, what if these um, uh, supplies get weaponized? Um, you know, we're not, obviously not the only ones thinking about what the future of lithium is here. Like, what, what are what are your concerns or what are your thoughts about um, sort of great power competition around these kinds of um, minerals and other technologies? Yeah, I think it goes for a number of minerals, but also critical supply chain and foundational technologies, Matt. I mean, the same questions need to get asked, which is uh, if we think about our own strengths and vulnerabilities, where do they intersect with potential or existing geopolitical adversaries? And, and where, where we have an asymmetric disadvantage, um, for example, in the mineral processing for some of these um, inputs to electric vehicle batteries, do we, have, do we have a plan to scale up either our domestic production or trusted trade agreements with partners that could surge these inputs in a, in a stressed episode? Uh, or can we can we negotiate uh, with China and other countries, you know, uh, rules of engagement so that we don't withhold these supplies in the event of conflict? Some combination, uh, and there's there are others, I and mean, we could stockpile some of these minerals. But some combination of of tools are going to be needed to deal with uh, potential potential shortfalls. And it applies. I mean, it's not just to minerals. It could apply to in 5G pharmaceutical products medical equipment, manufactured goods, certainly across the list of foundational technologies. 
uh, AI, biotech, quantum, robotics, hypersonics. You know, so we've got to look across the economy and identify, you know, really in a, in a game theory framework, um, how do we best position ourselves over the course of years, not just by thinking about our move, but also the moves of, um, of those who are, uh, who, who, who are adversaries and those who are also non-aligned. Um, stepping back for a second, I mean, how, how well do you think the economic models are faring in this world? And, you know, is, is the Fed in particular and other central banks, are they capable of processing the kind of, you know, changes you're talking about, which are largely like outside of the realm of like day-to-day prices? Yeah, it's, it's much harder now. <laughs> it's, <laughs> we're not this era of great moderation that we've started talking about. That was an era in which, you know, really central banks were mostly the only game in town and aggregate demand was the real variable in terms of how to forecast the, the macro economy. Uh, we now have monetary policy, fiscal policy and foreign policy all in flux at the same time. So it means both the demand side and the supply side are in motion. I don't think we have very good models to, to think about the interaction of all these variables. It's, it's why uh, so many mistakes have been made in forecasting since the pandemic. So um, I think central banks have to um, have to start over in a sense, uh, or at least you know start thinking more critically about the supply side. I mean, this year, if you want to make it about what's just happened in the past uh, 11 months in the U.S., I would say the biggest surprise has been the recovery of the supply side, not just supply chains, but also labor supply. Uh, which is which has really led to the disinflation in the services sector and allowed the Fed to pause. Mm-hmm. Um, we've also had the strongest two-quarter productivity growth since the late 1990s. So, I mean, Chair Powell talked about this at the last presser. Something might be happening that's lifted potential growth temporarily and really helped to accelerate the disinflation that we're observing. So, I mean, th- this is going to be part of the challenge going forward. I don't think it's a one-off. And then what, what do you, what do you tell investors about how to navigate this environment? Uh, be humble more than anything <laughs> else. You know, it's, um, yeah, I, I really, I think the complexity and the uncertainty we're facing, it's the highest we've had in several decades. The, the biggest failures of risk management, they're not going to be failures of memory. You know, we're all going to remember the pandemic and the GFC and the Asian financial crisis and everything else, but, but the failures will be those of imagination. So, I think we've got to do away with uh, with forecasting by point estimate and by just focusing on your base case. I mean, the challenge now is can you think across the probability distribution and can you can you create an investment culture in which you continuously pressure and probe the base case and kind of ask the awkward question? And if you if you do that, you have a better chance of, of being surprised less often and then reacting better when you when you are surprised. Um, I know that our, our listeners are going to want some more tactical advice there. Do you have any more you want to drill into that a little specifically about, you know, how you're telling people to position based on that? Yeah, I mean, I, look, we've had a remarkable run in the U.S. economy. We have not seen inflation drop this fast outside of war or recession in the past century. And yet we've also had five consecutive quarters of above trend growth. Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty remarkable, but I think it gets harder from here. I mean, the cyclical headwinds are pretty stiff. Monetary policy is no matter where you estimate neutral rates to be, it's tight. I think fiscal policy is at best neutral. It may also tighten uh, depending on how the budget battles get resolved. 
and we know bank credit conditions are also tight. Um, you know, meanwhile, we know excess savings are, are nearly exhausted among the lower and middle income cohort. And we're getting some external headwinds from abroad. I mean, Europe is essentially in recession, China sputtering. So I think we're going to slow down. Um, I think we'll avoid recession, but we'll probably slow down to a pace of growth between one to one and a half percent. I think this inflation is going to continue uh, probably into the high 2% area, not all the way back to 2%. And that's for reasons that are structural. We, we've started kind of hinting at some of them before. Uh, so we'll be in an environment that's not as favorable as what we just went through. Um, one to one and a half percent growth, two and a half to three percent inflation. I think in that context, the Fed can take its foot off the brake. I mean, our, our expectation is they'll cut three times next year to 4.75 percent. So that's uh, that's a bit less restrictive policy, but it's still tight. And, and, and so in that kind of environment, you know, there are going to be some opportunities, I think, in the long end of the bond market, high quality credit. Uh, but right now, if you compare the yields you get in the credit markets and bond markets to, to equities, um, I don't see enough compensation to be in, in risky assets like equities at the moment. All right, great. Uh, well, we should leave it there. Um, Delete, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure, Matt. Happy uh, And thank you to our audience for tuning in. I hope you will all come back on Monday when Lauren Rublin Baron Senior Managing Editor uh, and Ben Levison, our Deputy Editor, will discuss the outlook for financial markets, industry sectors, and individual stocks. Thanks, everybody. Have a great day. This episode is brought to you by Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington can affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab that unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and portfolio. Listen at schwab.com slash Washington Wise.